1: Hello and welcome to another episode of Earth 911's Sustainability in your Ear. This is the podcast conversation with a change maker working to accelerate the transition to a sustainable carbon neutral society. And I'm your host, Mitch Ratcliffe. You know, a sustainable built environment is the foundation for lower energy use, but it's going to take a generation or more to put in place. Today's building industry has adopted several environmental standards that guide more sustainable construction. Including the Leadership in Energy and Environmental Design, or LEED certification, which is a program of the U.S. Green Building Council, the energy efficiency standards from the Passive House Institute, and evolving standards for construction processes, air conditioning, and much more. We're joined today by Dr. Ganesan Viswaparathi, who is the founder of Hawthorne Development Corporation. Hawthorne recently completed two net zero projects, the Eco Terra Building, which is a 348-unit luxury mixed-use apartment complex in Chicago, and Meru, uh, a net zero carbon and net zero energy certified elder care facility in Virginia. We wanted to share a look at the direction that commercial and residential building is going and the challenges of making sustainability progress. Hawthorne has been using green construction ideas since it was founded in 1984. The company has worked to ensure that buyers are able to maintain their homes easily to keep energy efficiency level high and Uses building practices that help prevent erosion and reduces cost by, for example, using bioswales, rain gardens, and native plants instead of concrete stormwater runoff paths at building locations. You can learn more about Hawthorne Development Corporation at hawthornworld.com. Hawthorne World is all one word, hawthornworld.com. So let's get into the details of green construction. Welcome to the show, Dr. Vish. How are you doing today? I'm doing great. Well, oh, thank you for joining great. us. Surely. We have great weather here in Chicago, so it's great. Well, uh, it's better to have great weather than bad weather, that's for sure. I I wanted to start off and talk about both the projects, Ecoterra and Meru, that you have been working on. Uh, Ecoterra is a a large multifamily facility. What are the green features that make a multifamily facility sustainable? Uh,
2: There are a number of features um, that Ecoterra project is uh, has got not just a passive house mm-hmm. uh, but also it is national green building standards you know green gold and also net zero. So there are so many green features for instance the use of uh, solar energy uh, is part of it and then when you talk about passive house you are talking about the continuous insulation uh, providing a very tight building. Um, and uh, obviously our uh, uh, insulation on the roof as well as the walls are are higher than much higher than cold mm-hmm. uh, it is also it uses uh, hrV heat recovery ventilation which means you get a continuous supply of fresh air so there is no stale air ever in the in the units which is very important in today's uh uh, COVID-laden environment because we continuously supply fresh air. The stale air never stays in the units. Um, so so it has so many of these features uh, that makes it uh, kind of unique.
1: Now, we understand that the buildings will use about, well, between 40 and 60% less energy overall. Will all of the energy be provided by the solar or is it a combination of solar and grid-connected uh, power?
2: Well, we have to have grid connection uh, mm-hmm. for sure um, because solar cannot provide continuous power. So even if you have lithium-ion batteries, uh, you cannot supply the building 24-7. So it is grid connected, but uh, we are able to uh, provide a remote solar field and produce the energy and have like the virtual net metering agreement with, with the property. So in other words, we can produce solar at a remote site and we just export it to the grid, but we can get credit for that and by signing a remote purchase agreement with the building.
1: So essentially the the, the building becomes a dynamic part of the grid exchanging power when it overproduces and pulling power when it needs it.
2: Uh, Absolutely correct, yes.
1: Now, with Meru, which is the, the elder care facility in Virginia, you achieve net zero carbon and net zero energy status. Does that mean literally the buildings were constructed without any carbon footprint?
2: Well, let's define the carbon footprint. If you're okay. talking about, uh, uh, does the building itself use, you know, produce any carbon emission? Uh, The answer is no, because the building is all electric Mm -hmm. and there is no gas in the building. So we don't produce any carbon uh, at all during construction. Now, if you say, how about the materials used in construction? How were they produced? Uh, Well, that's a different equation. Mm-hmm. Uh, how much carbon was used in the production of the drywall or, or the timber or uh, insulation material, etc, That is a different equation and we are
1: not there. Okay. Uh, Fair <clears throat> so when you think about how to get there, uh, you know for instance, we've had a number of conversations about the, the carbon impact of concrete. Do you see evolution in the building materials environment? Going on that will allow you maybe sometime in the in during your career, let's put it that way, uh, actually build a building that has embodied carbon levels of zero or net positive. Um, the, if,
2: if we don't get to zero, but at least get close to zero, for instance, in the concrete, if we use more of fly ash. Uh, you know, in autoclave uh, concrete, um, they still, they're using a bunch of fly ash material. The more fly ash you use, um, the more, uh, you know, environmentally uh, productive, environmentally friendly material that you're using. So in the production of concrete itself, um, you know, the, as much as recycling uh recycling waste for instance we when we demolish a building we try to save all the materials remove the metals send them for recycling and then you have uh the uh, the, the crumb of it in other words the um, uh, concrete and other materials which we use for road purposes so it's completely uh, you know recycled and used uh so that's one thing that uh, we do that can contribute to environmental uh, uh, sensitivity. And uh, yes, materials such as fly ash play a huge role in reducing the carbon footprint.
1: Now, you started the company back in the 1980s and have embraced sustainable building practices the entire time uh, was that? The primary reason that you started hawthorne to 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 build green and and what inspired you to do so so early?
2: Well, to to a great extent, uh, we have been always ahead of the curve, and uh, the idea of green um, and energy saving comes from a bit from my background, which is you know I'm an engineer, come. Mm-hmm. Uh Coming from India, we are used to saving uh, saving energy, saving money, et cetera, so kind of like inculcated right from uh childhood and so when I started looking at the buildings and I looked at the enormous waste i mean just to just to give you one instance, even people at the time i 'm talking about seventies people didn't mm-hmm. even care to switch off the lights. Right. Uh, lights were burning all the time. Tennis courts were lit all night long, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So I said, "Come on, there's got to be a better way." <laughs> so, so we started using timers, and uh, uh, you know, long before uh, today, it's kind of norm. Everybody uses it, but we used it a long time ago because it's kind of we were sensitive.
1: Well, that that the perspective of seeing the waste or the useful materials in what we would previously have described as waste is really the underpinning of rethinking our approach to the built environment. So you're looking at an old building as the potential resource to start to build the next building, but you're also looking at the land in the context of how to preserve it and so forth. Let's talk about a couple of just issues that I pulled from reading your site and and learning about this. When you pick a lot, what's involved in making a location ready for a green building? And, And can that be applied to any location or are there specific characteristics one must look for?
2: Uh, yeah, there are specific characteristics that you should be looking for. For instance, uh, if you want to build a green building, uh, look at uh, the habitat that mm-hmm. uh, nestles in the area. Uh, so you should be sensitive to that. So you can't just build anywhere. Uh, second I'm going beyond what the uh, what the law is i'm saying right. you know we should be sensitive beyond you know whatever the law provides and then uh, how close is it to transportation uh, is another consideration and uh, what about uh, the utility connections how you know do we have it you know if it is two three miles away obviously you're wasting a lot of energy uh, in in doing it and finally density Mm-hmm. Uh, density is a plus when you want to build the green density is a plus and so we can you know even if you're concerned about density in this covid-laden environment that's why we are providing all you know hrv heat recovery ventilation you know fresh air etc so there is there are ways of handling density but density higher the density the better it is for a green building
1: now, a, a few minutes ago, you mentioned that your your insulation strategy at at uh, Ecoterra was far better than code. Do we need to rethink our building codes to force more of the uh, of this kind of, of of thoughtful activity, or is this something that will building companies are going to adopt simply to meet consumer demand? Um, what's the right way for us to think about driving? The acceleration of adoption of green practices.
2: I, I think the code has got to move in the direction of uh, uh, requiring, you know, more insulation. Mm-hmm. And uh, you know, you know, we have two camps in the country. One wants more of, uh, you know, environmentally sensitive things. The other camp doesn't want it, etc. But a, but a great example is what happened recently in the Senate. Uh, the people who do not normally go for these uh, green things, there's a lot of uh, senators who were sitting on the other side, voted together with the people who would want all of these. And, you know, so the reason it happened was like a lot of manufacturers of uh, refrigerators and air conditioning equipment went to the Senate and said, like, we want this because Europeans are doing it. And if you don't put this CFC, you know, fluorocarbons, you know, put a tight lid on it, they they are taking the market share from us. And we are going to be losing market share. So we need a law that forces us to to reduce the impact of CFCs, which is a unique case. I and mean, let's, let's have it. Business is now driving
1: regulation. Well, to some extent, I think we always have seen business drive regulation. But- it's interesting that they're starting to respond to what people around the world, rather than just Americans, are, are focused on too, which I think is coming from your background in India and, and thinking about what we can learn from the rest of the world. Is the United States in the lead anymore? Or are we, are we really looking for inspiration elsewhere? And what should we be following?
2: I, I would say we are not in the lead. I think uh, the leaders in in this case are really the Europeans. Mm-hmm. Um, for a number of reasons, you know, they are resource constrained, so they have to save. They are traditionally thinking about saving. And uh, if you look at uh, a country like Sweden, which is far more advanced, I mean, they got the goal of uh, zero carbon, uh, net zero, all of these uh, within before, you know, by the year 20, 40, 100%. Mm-hmm. And uh, they have a, a, an an embedded system in the country itself. For instance, uh, beef farms are popular everywhere in, uh, in Sweden. Uh, they have vertical farming. Mm-hmm. Uh, Europeans are, vertical farming is coming to America, but really, if you look at who are the pioneers in this, who are the best? Vertical farming saves a lot of energy. And, you know, I'm talking about water and soil and fertilizer and all of this. We make it in a controlled environment. But if you look at who are the leaders, it's the Holland, it's the Dutch, and it's the Swedes. So they are teaching us, you know, a a few things in terms of uh, sustainability. And then there is also the, the the swedish child starts to learn at a grade school about the environment and sustainability mm-hmm. we are not there we are not there we need to be you know only uh, we need we need to learn from the europeans i would say quite a bit
1: is there a particular construction process or methodology that you you would point to and say that's what we need to be doing um with regard to insulation materials they're using their approach to the design of the density of of people living in close proximity
2: yeah i would say the passive house principle which itself started in europe mm-hmm. which is uh, you know being implemented now is a great one to follow because the passive house has the you know the uh, the uh, principles of The insulation, the principles of clean air, the principles of energy production, um, all of these, and also uh, not having, you know, kind of like oversized windows everywhere, you know, you need it for certain areas, but not everywhere, etc. kind of like, can we look at it from the perspective of how much energy the building is going to consume, how healthy is the building as opposed to just, you know, I just want to see you know large windows everywhere that's all it is so there are other aspects as well uh look into that so i think that is that is one area and the second is the the national green building standards itself which gives a lot of credit to the lot selection mm-hmm. uh the lot size uh your uh you know water conservancy You know, for you know, for instance, you're talking about uh, rain gardens and uh, um, the uh, the bioswales and rain gardens and and bee farms and all of that. For instance, native plants. This is a tremendous uh, experience in Illinois. I know on a limited scale. Talking to people who just got rid of their lawns and put native plants. Can you believe that the birds come, the 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 songbirds and the nightingales, and and then the the uh, all of a sudden bees are coming. And and you talk to people who got rid of their of their green uh, lawn and put native plants. They say it is a fantastic experience. I mean, you may say well, it doesn't look great, but listen, that's what native is all about. You want the birds, you want the bees, and you you can do it.
1: So fit into nature rather than take over and remove nature when you're thinking about building. Exactly. Exactly. Well, you know, this is a great place to take a quick commercial break. We're going to be right back to talk some more. We're back to talk with uh, Dr. Ganesan Biswab Barathi. Uh, He's the founder of Hawthorne Development Corporation, a Burr Ridge, Illinois-based green building developer. Dr. Vish, thanks for uh, continuing the conversation. One of the things you call out on your site as a key strength is the American idea of self-reliance. And I wanted to dig into why you feel that in particular, which sometimes can be, it's a a double-edged sword, a strength with regard to sustainability.
2: Uh, yes. When we rely on uh, ourselves, internal manufacturing methods and internal production of energy as opposed to importing uh, oil from Middle East or anywhere else, mm-hmm. or we are producing, we are making the chips. We, if we make the chips locally, We can control the process in terms of energy consumption, etc., but if you import the chips from China, you don't know what they do, and you don't know how much embedded carbon has gone inside or in in the production of it, etc. So, the American idea of self-reliance, listen, we got everything. Mm -hmm. You know, we really, I mean, I'm not saying I'm anti-trade, but the point is that as much as possible, if we do our own, and there are there is a lot of value to it because uh, we you know we are not susceptible to political situations elsewhere secondly we can control the process so we know how much energy is being used and uh, you know, we can produce things in a sustainable
1: manner so you're not really talking to the kind of the idea of the uh, isolated pioneer living entirely on their own you're talking about a community living together And creating a sustainable economy rather than, you know, it's all, I'm all in it for me and everybody else can take care of themselves.
2: You you, you are absolutely correct. You're absolutely correct. It's community uh, that, that has, you know, that can follow this concept and.
1: Well, so when you're working on the Maru project, for instance, which is an elder care community, how do you design for community? I, I, I spent, many years reading christopher alexander's work on um a a timeless way of building is in a pattern language for instance and always i'm curious to 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 know how people think about the design of a a shareable and enjoyable space you mean to bring the community aspect how do you how do you build a community i mean people move into it and then begin to live there but how do you design it in such a way that they coalesce as a community
2: uh, the the one of the key features is that you have to provide uh, a very generous amount of common space okay So the meeting space um, has to be plentiful. For instance our project in Virginia first of all it looks like a resort you have 14 acres of land and so outdoor space is plentiful and indoor, There are so many meeting areas and the activities director has got to make sure that you are completely packed with activities all day long. So 9 o'clock is uh, a painting, uh, you know, art exhibition from 9 to 10. Uh, 10 to 11 is uh, how to fix a carburetor in your car. Uh, You know, 11 to 12 is uh, poetry reading, uh, etc. So
1: well, thinking about the design though, is it important for instance for people to be able to see one another's homes or is it is it a sense of being isolated so that you can exit and go into the community also important
2: uh, that that is a good question uh, if you look at the Old Chicago buildings, uh, many of them have like a, uh, a, a courtyard in the in the center, and you know you can you can look around and you can look down and etc. Cetera, etc. Cetera. Uh, when it comes to um, senior uh, situation, they need a lot of them have health issues, etc. So we don't provide as much of like everybody else can see you, et cetera, but we provide a mountain view. We provide a forest view. Uh, we provide, you know, nice plants, et cetera. And then whenever you want, you can get out and, and mingle with others. So it's kind of like, a, uh, yes, it is, it is meeting spaces, open spaces, but also privacy because you have health issues.
1: So if you were giving advice to somebody who was looking for a home, whether that was multifamily or, or, or a standalone residence, what factors would you suggest they pay the most attention to, to ensure that they get the most sustainable place to live?
2: I think the, one of the prime questions to ask is really um, how was this building built? Mm-hmm. So, what is the what was the insulation materials used? What is going to be my energy charges? You know, projected energy charges, and uh, the do you have green building certification? Mm-hmm. If you remember, uh, in in the U.S. Uh, uh, just a few years ago, people were willing to pay more for solar power. In other words, consumers were saying ah, ah, that's okay. It's green power, so I'll pay more. Mm-hmm. So. That is the kind of thing that is even happening. There is a segment out there that's saying I'll pay more for a green building and that I would say has got to change and say more people if more people are building green, well you don't have to pay extra for green because it doesn't you know it doesn't cost more to build green. It's just a different method of building. Uh-huh. If there is any cost difference, it's a very small difference of two percent and if you know what you're doing it's it disappears because your you know your uh, operating costs are much lower so you recover that money so i would ask
1: all these questions so like a like a compact fluorescent light or an led light costs more up front but saves you much more over the course of the, the life of the bulb you should think that way about a house too absolutely a- absolutely and you said about a two percent premium at, at at most, but it sounds to me like we're reaching parity in terms of green construction costs with traditional construction costs.
2: We are absolutely getting there, uh, because uh, five years ago, solar power was like, a, you know, it was a cost per watt used to be something like, whereas grid power was, uh, I'm talking about Illinois, for instance, grid power was like 7, 8 cents. Uh, solar power was 20 cents. Right. But today, there is grid parity. You know, in five years, we have come a long way. So likewise, the building trade is also moving in that direction. We are getting to be green parity.
1: Do you see a need for continued subsidies of certain types of materials or practices, for instance, in order to encourage more adoption of those at this time? Is there any do you have thoughts about what we should be making public policy to drive society toward?
2: Yes, there are areas where public policy should be uh, more uh, friendly and receptive. Just one area I can think of is geothermal. Mm-hmm. Uh, geothermal systems, geothermal heat, for instance, uh, unfortunately, the tax credit is still ten uh, percent for uh, commercial installations. Homeowners may get thirty percent, but commercial when you build large scale projects, uh, it is not incentivized enough it's an absolutely green technology. You save so much energy you making use of the the earth's heat content. And so, that is one thing uh, I would suggest that public policy has to look at the incentives for green technologies and where it is missing has got to be fill in the plug the holes. Mm-hmm. Uh, one is geothermal. Uh, the the second is uh, hydrogen is coming to be the talk of the town. You know more and more. So. Uh, the, to a great extent, the hydrogen production of hydrogen needs to be incentivized. You know, we are these days looking at systems whereby uh, you can have solar, you have the battery, and then the uh, solar power is used to split the water by mm-hmm. electrolysis into uh, you know hydrogen and oxygen, and then you store the hydrogen in the ground so that at the time of uh, winter time you can release the heat. Uh, to, the, to the building. So things like this need to be incentivized because clean hydrogen is, is a great thing coming.
1: I would love to see that. I, I, I hope we get there. Let me ask you about the lead standard. It's 32 years old, and it requires at least a 35% reduction in CO2 emissions for a project to qualify. Is it time for us to raise those standards? Should we be being more aggressive?
2: Uh, yes, it is yes, it is time because uh, the uh, lead standard is several, several years old as you know decades old, and technology has advanced a lot more today. We mm-hmm. have a lot more choices in green materials uh, we can use, and uh, they it, it, definitely in terms of uh, the standards for not just uh, energy consumption of buildings. Uh, not only their carbon impact, not only the energy consumption, but also uh, indoor air quality. It has got to be part of future certifications. It is not sufficient if you talk about the building and its performance uh, in terms of energy and, mm-hmm. and, the, and the materials used. Uh, we have to talk in terms of indoor air quality because, uh, uh, you know, COVID is gone today, but don't think it's gone forever. It can reappear next year. So if we don't have a a system whereby we absolutely assure the people clean air constantly, we will be in trouble again.
1: Well, and because climate change exacerbates a lot of diseases that are passed through the air. Uh, That's certainly something we need to do to prepare to adapt to it as it gets warmer. But let me go back to lead for a second. So it currently says 35% reduction in CO2 emissions. Where should we get that to? Should it be 50, 60, 70% uh, in order to qualify as a truly green building?
2: I think it should slowly inch up over a period of say 20 years Okay. In every year, a couple of uh, 3%, something like that. So we, we reach a point of at least 75 to 80% uh, less carbon. And mm-hmm. it can happen. It, it cannot happen overnight. But if you give time, like we have a goal. By 2042, this is where we are going to be. We are going to be, the 32% is being increased to 75%, 80%. And just like California has put a rule that no more no more gasoline-powered cars. That's it. Yeah. And, you know, so it, it, it's sort of like that, but it has to come at the federal level, and uh, I'm pretty sure companies are going to be leading the charge, not our lawmakers, unfortunately.
1: Well, unfortunately, our lawmakers are taking a lot of instruction from the wrong places these days. <laughs> Many of our listeners may not be thinking about buying a home, but thinking about what they could do to make their home more sustainable. What would you suggest the the two or three most impactful changes somebody could make to their house or their apartment building in order to make it more sustainable?
2: One of the simplest things you can do, a couple of simple things you can do, um, one of them is really solarize your home. Mm-hmm. Uh, fortunately, every state has incentives. So... Solar is really an economical way to uh, produce power at your home. Uh, so y- you can definitely consider that as one of the low-cost ways to make your uh, uh, you know, place green. And there are other things like, uh, you know, if you give up your fascination for the lawn, the green mm-hmm. lawn, um, I tell you, you can simply just just try and use native plants, and that itself, you will see a huge change in the in in your environment. When you see the birds and the bees, you know, congregate at your place, you
1: will see the difference. The oh, and thing less water, and less water is required too, right?
2: Uh, yeah, I mean, less water, absolutely, absolutely, because native plants are very sturdy. And they, in the event of a flood, uh, there is they the, the roots are so deep that there is no landslide. You know, we, we see this constantly: areas underwater, etc. I mean, uh, what happened in Mississippi recently, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera, because you have completely destroyed the natural habitat, natural plants, and then you know, imported all this, you know, lawn of various kinds, seeds of various kinds. And you can do simple things like uh, simple, apart from native plants, you do a little rain garden, you do composting. Hmm. These are less costly things that the homeowners can do and yet be a great contributor to the environment.
1: And what about changing or making an investment in insulation? It sounds like, based on what you said earlier, that that would be a very big change.
2: Uh, yes. Yes, particularly roof cavity insulation, which is easy. You can go to the attic and add, and you know, if, if, if the walls are all set, then you may not want to add uh, anything, You know, disturb the walls. But certainly, roof cavity insulation you can do, and uh, also the energy reducing uh, faucets in uh, you know, energy star rated uh, appliances, because uh, everybody changes the appliances every, at least maybe 15 years or something. And so now why don't you go for energy star rated appliances? And, and people would like to remodel their bathrooms and kitchens maybe every 10 years or 15 years. Mm-hmm. So we can do some, you know, flow reducing faucets, these are simple things which are not costly. LED lights is, is another one because you save like, I mean, phenomenal amount of uh, energy saving uh, and, and very long life, very long life. I mean, <laughs> you, 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 you put it up and maybe until the next 25 years, you don't have to change the light bulb.
1: It's a it's a big change, and and not to make fun of a former president who mocked the idea, uh, a huge way to save money. So, as you look at both the the new building and the renovation that you were just describing, how long do you think it will take for us to bring the built environment in the United States to a genuinely sustainable state? Are we going to be able to achieve this by twenty fifty or twenty sixty, or is it going to take longer?
2: Definitely, it is it is possible to achieve by at least by 2060. Mm -hmm. Uh, But we have to set interim goals. I mean, you cannot say I'm just I'm going to be a marathon runner and then uh, you know don't practice for five miles and ten miles and fifteen miles. You can't run the marathon overnight. So we have to set interim goals. You know, in terms of carbon uh, uh, contribution of buildings. Mm-hmm. uh lead standards uh, uh national green building standards everything must in CHOP. and this has to be from the federal side there mm-hmm. are progressive states like california but uh, not every state is california uh you know there are more states that have regressive policies than progressive policies so uh w- we need help from from the federal government and and Maybe in order to induce them, it's not just the businesses, but a lot of local grassroots level action. If we start with the counties, if we start with the local, uh, you know, little towns, uh, we can make it
1: happen. So would you suggest that our listeners, if they want to make an impact, go to their local zoning commission meetings and start to talk with the, the commissioners?
2: Absolutely. That is how massive change is going to happen because you can't rely on the federal government because politics changes you know every few years so you, you don't know we take two steps forward and three steps backward so we can't rely on it but if you go to the local zoning meetings and insist that this has got to be there and you want more density you do this right and you can incentivize the developers like that and and the people should raise their voice at these
1: meetings they can shape their communities
2: yeah and elect those, elect those for the local councils, local county board trustees, etc., etc. Elect those who are with you, mm-hmm. who, who, who vote for these environmental uh, issues.
1: Well, Dr. Vish, I want to thank you for taking time to talk with us today. It's been fascinating. Thank you so much.
2: Enjoyed, Enjoyed meeting you and talking with you.
1: Uh, how can people keep up on what Hawthorne Development is doing?
2: Uh, They can visit our website. Uh, It's called www.hothornworld.com, Hawthon with an E, and then W-O-R-L-D.com. We also have a solar uh, website, uh, solarmicronics.co, S o l a r m i c r o n i c s dot C-O.
1: Great, we'll include links to both of those in the site, in the uh, article that goes with this this, uh, podcast.
2: That'll be great.
1: Uh, we've been speaking with Dr. Vish. That's Ganesan Visbabarathi. He is the founder of Hawthorne Development Corporation. And you can learn more about them at hawthornworldcom All one word, hawthornworldcom Or at Solarmicronics, also one word, solarmicronics.co. Well, once again, we've heard that ordinary citizens can take action to make significant changes in their community's environmental impact. From changing your incandescent light bulbs to LED bulbs, to upgrading energy-efficient appliances, adding solar panels and insulation to an existing home, there are many paths to reduce your impact by 50% or more. These small changes add up. And in fact, there was a recent Nature Sustainability article about the, the, the reality of our opportunity. There were uh, They looked at uh, more than 112 different paths to sustainability and more than half resulted in the kinds of reductions that we need to end climate change. So let's get busy. And as Dr. Vish said at the end, getting involved in your city's politics to recast zoning laws and local regulations to support environmentally responsible building and transportation practices can make an even greater impact. That's a legacy we can leave for our children and grandchildren. I hope you'll take a minute to share this show or dig into our archives of hundreds of interviews. We capture these ideas, but you, my friends, are the amplifiers that spread them to others. Tell your friends, family, and neighbors they can find sustainability in your ear on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, iHeartRadio, Audible, or any of the other fine purveyors of podcast goodness that you prefer. I'm Mitch Ratcliffe. We'll be back with another innovator interview soon. In the meantime, folks, take care of yourself, take care of one another, and let's all take care of this beautiful planet of ours. Have a green day.
0: 18 plus.